This is Laura Deirdre with the Becker's Healthcare Podcast. I'm thrilled today to be joined by Dr. Bill John Julio, Chief Population Health Officer of Allegheny Health Network. Bill, it's a pleasure to have you on the podcast today. Thank you. Now, I know we've got a lot to talk about, but before we dive into my questions, can you tell me a little bit more about yourself and your background? Sure, Laura. Um, I, a little non-traditional in the way I made it to medicine. I spent my first six years working in the business world, and I worked in the explosives and mining industry. And I'd moved my wife from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, out to Iowa City, Iowa, so that wasn't a great start. Um, but long story short, uh, 12 years later, we had two children, Will and Grace, before the TV show. Uh, my wife got her MBA, and I uh, got interested and went back to medical school and did my training, and then we moved back to Pittsburgh. Um, and we moved back. I worked in medical education at Mercy Hospital in 1998. So then in 2004, I had started a multi-office private practice. And then in 2010, I moved to the West Penalty Health System to oversee their Department of Family Medicine and the residency program. And then that system was uh, transformed and became the Allegheny Health Network. And then our network was subsequently acquired by Highmark Insurance, Inc. And now we are both AHN and Highmark, Inc., roll up under an enterprise parent called Highmark Health. So we're in a unique situation where a parent owns both the insurer as well as the provider. And there's firewalls in between, but it allows us to do a lot of, uh, a lot of things that we wouldn't be able to do if we were just a standalone um, hospital system. So in 2017, we set up our clinically integrated network and our ACO, and I now serve as the chair for the Primary Care Institute which involves uh, general internal medicine, family medicine, geriatrics, as well as the chair for the Department of Family Medicine, um, also the medical director for our clinically integrated network, as well as the chief population health officer at AHN. So on the fun side, uh, I really uh, like to water and snow ski, as well as uh, do a lot of mountain bike riding. And the nice thing is both my daughter and son followed me in these hobbies. So now they tolerate their dad as long as uh, they're able to tag along, you know, for a free vacation. So that's uh, what I do. Fantastic. Well, it sounds like, you know, you have an amazing setup there and keep busy at um, Allegheny Health Network, but also have a lot of fun with your family. Now, when you think about um, from your vantage point as both a clinician, but uh, thinking about population health as well, what are the biggest trends that you're following in healthcare today? Well, um, it's a good question. There's a couple trends that really bubble up. One big one is, you know, reimbursement from the insurers and the movement from volume to value. And it seems like most of our insurers really want to move in this direction and quickly. And we can do so in the ambulatory world in a pretty good manner. But what we haven't figured out is how to keep our hospitals solvent yet if they go at full risk. Um, you know, another thing we're following is, you know, if you notice, there's a lot of customization of care and access, you know, to meet patients' needs and their preferences out there. You know, we've seen an increase in the use of uh, telehealth, you know, providing care through electronic records, solutions and technologies are supporting self-management. And so what we've coined it is, we call it kind of primary care my way. An example is like my 27-year-old daughter, I mean, she doesn't care if she ever has to see a physician other than, you know, maybe getting some immunizations, a couple tests, and, you know, maybe a pap. But my 78 and 80-year-old parents, they really like seeing their physician, and they're actually happy that they have his mobile number. So I think if we really don't provide customization for our patients, you know, they're going to go elsewhere. Um, another thing we're dealing with and following is the impact of COVID. 
you know, we've seen significant increases in substance misuse, you know, behavioral health needs, and I'll talk a little bit later about how we address that, you know, and delayed care and, you know, staffing shortages. And, and with, with the shortages, I think many individuals just decide to either leave health care or retired early. And what that's leaving is pretty much an emotional stress on the remaining staff, as well as a financial burden on our systems where we're not really able to maintain the volume demands due to your know, lack of nursing availability. And I think that's that resonates across the country. And finally, as we're all moving towards risk, we're really following the Medicare ACO evolving regulations pretty closely because um, you're going to have to get that right if we're going to you know, survive in the future payment models for Medicare. Got it. There are so many things, as you mentioned, that really have to be top of mind from the provider space as well as thinking about patients, thinking about how you want to move forward in terms of caring for your community. So, you know, where do you see some of the best opportunities to expand and improve population health? Yeah, or I love this question. It's what gets me out of bed and makes it fun to come to work. You know, um, everybody talks about how population health is getting all patients the right care, you know, at the right time, at the right place. But um, when, we, when we really became intentional, we thought, what do we need to do make sure that what we create is reproducible and sustainable. So we, we kind of took a longitudinal approach and, and ferreted it out into, you know, we, we needed to get our offices in better shape with better flow. So we went through a primary care redesign initiative, others call it transformation, even though I think that's a, you know, an overused word. Then we knew we needed to create some dashboards to track how we're doing informatics and change our compensation models to drive, you know, the provider's behavior. Uh, we then thought we need to be able to scale. So we started to professionally managed and physician-led initiative or our clinically integrated network. And, you know, it had an operational infrastructure where we could execute on our decisions. And then, you know, we needed to go after supporting provider-to-provider accountability and transparency. So that's kind of the tenets that we followed when we were really setting up, you know, a new model. And so for primary care redesign, it's nothing new. Um, you know, it's, it's something that's been done across the country. It's, you know, 20 years ago, they were doing it in hospitals out on the West Coast, but um, we were very fortunate that we were able to present to and convince our leadership to support this initiative because it does require increased staffing, and you know the investment was not insignificant. So first, we really looked at creating core care teams in the practice. So we made sure there were RNs for care coordination to make the day go better and for reach out. You know we had the medical assistants, the patient access coordinators, but we also developed a new position called health coaches, which are really MAs with population health data skill sets to, you know, do some of the data mining, and they became the patient's kind of go-tos. And then we took practices and lumped them together in learning collaboratives, and we did some education in those collaboratives in, in like 10 cycles, and we really followed the patient-centered medical home tenants, because if, if you're perfect and you nail all of them, you're going to be best in class, which is pretty much unattainable. But we really didn't do it to check the boxes like a lot of us did previously we just use the concepts to help drive the workflow change and things like, you know, if my day's better planned, I'll have a better day with pre-visit planning or, you know, roles and responsibilities. And so we use these as education and working tools to teach our practices how to work better and solve their own problems. And once you get the practices functioning at a higher level, that's when we decided to add the extended care team members, which include like behavioral health consultants, which were licensed clinical social workers and shared pharmacists and social work and nutrition. And, you know, one example there is we looked and saw some 
um, organizations that hired all these people, these extended care team members, uh, without doing any work in their offices. And what we saw is a fair number within a couple of years had these people, you know, leaving or going away because the offices really weren't ready or trained on how to use them. So we felt it was better to get your offices working first before you add these members. And um, the other thing we looked at is you really need to use technology because, you know, when the patient's sitting in front of you, you do a pretty good job. But, you know, we need to manage all patients in, you know, population health. So we secured some technology where we could follow our patients you know, through their healthcare journey. And so we know when they have an ED visit, we know when they have been admitted to discharge from a hospital or skill facility. And what this does, it allows us the ability to be proactive and reach out versus reactive to, you know, to manage care, care, you know, to outreach for transitions of care. And then you have to have information to guide your decisions. So we created Tableau dashboards and informatics that really give us the optics to show us where we could go to improve quality or reduce waste. And then once you implement, you know, you have to have data to follow your outcomes, like STARS need utilization and readmissions. And I think everybody tracks that, but that just validates whether what you're doing is working or not, and, you know, for your whole population. And if it is, you continue. And if it's not, you, you know, you pivot. And then what we really used in primary care um, was compensation to drive the behaviors. And I always tell people, you know, docs won't do anything because I tell them to or I send them a memo. They will do it for a short time if I ask them and they know I'm doing it, but will really change their behaviors if, if they're convinced that it'll improve the outcomes for their patients, it'll make their own lives a little bit better. And so, you know, when we see things, one example, a big example last year was, you know, the data showed us that you know, patients in our Medicare fee-for-service that had an annual wellness visit had improved quality and reduced cost. We didn't know 100% why, but it was consistent, so we put it in our um, incentive plan, and we saw the percentages go from 40 to 75% for the annual wellness visits, and the cost went down, the quality went up. So, I mean, you know, you can give them the information, but I think docs are like electricity, and so, you know, it is helping if you provide a compensation to help drive that behavior. Um, and then what we did is to get some extra value out of it when we formed our CIN, so we can scale a lot of this work we're doing. And the one thing is, we have 3,600 providers and over 400,000 patients, uh, it's a lot easier to negotiate value-based agreements with your insurers. And, you know, we have about 35 to 40% of our attribution, our clinically integrated network are non-AHN employed physicians as well as um, community hospitals. And so what we did to be intentional that everybody has a say is we set up bylaws where the independent providers have a significant voice at all levels. For example, on our board, you know, if all the employee docs and the HN managers, the four of them vote one way, that still won't pass a motion where you have to have at least a third of the non-employed. So it really is giving up a little bit of the control also to the providers to make the right decisions to, to better manage your population. And that really engaged um, the non-employed providers. And then, you know, with the CN, it's professionally managed, but it's physician-led. So we use the informatics. The providers decide on what we're going to work on, whether it's colorectal cancer screening, you know, cervical cancer screening. Um, and then we have an infrastructure with quality specialists so that the physicians don't have to do it, but there's a group that go out to every office every month and execute. And we call it the simple sheet, and we only try to give them three things at a time to work on you know, change the workflows. And if the data and follow-up shows that it's working, you know, then the docs will include it. Again, and if it's not, we try to change. And so with that, 
you know, we, we really create an environment of provider-to-provider accountability as well as dashboards for transparency. So um, it's an open book with us. In AHN, any provider who's in primary care can see any other provider's dashboard in, you know, the risk-adjusted panel size, their RVUs, their percent of uh, hemoglobin A1C, it's over nine. You know, the ED utilization, the whole nine yards is, is uh, an open book. And we kind of use it to see who's doing best practice and go down that road, just like we did with the ED utilization with Dr. Shin and the readmissions. We try to share versus using it as a stick. And uh, the other thing is, it sounds corny, but we really encourage everyone to follow the triple aim previously, and now it's the quadruple aim where, you know, we work on patient access and satisfaction and quality and cost. But at the same time, what we really try to do is um, work on initiatives that improve the lives and satisfaction of our providers and staff. Because when that happens, and I think through the redesign process, we made a, a big stride. Um, it, it makes it makes the patient's experience better, and we see that through our comments. And I guess, you know, we have a couple examples, and I, I alluded to earlier with David Shin, a doc in the North. He uh, was pretty negative individual previously, well-trained, good doc, you know, not closing the encounters, and he committed to going through the redesign process. Long story short, he's one of our pod leaders now, and he's the one that did the ED utilization um, and the readmission reduction initiative kind of on their own, their pod. They saw a 4% decrease in ED utilization the next year, as well as a 10% reduction in their admissions, and it was so successful, then that's what we scaled to all of our other pods, you know, across our footprint. And, um, Another great example is uh, one of our, Dr. Deacon, um, it's an internist, um, and again, not the happiest person when I met her in 2010. She went through transformation, took it seriously. Their office became extremely high-performing, and um, you know, one day they had a diabetic call. It was having some blurry vision, some neurologic symptoms, but nothing really acutely dangerous. And she said, you know, instead of going to the emergency room, why don't you just come on in here and let me take a look at you? Sugars were high. Uh, the other electrolytes and concerning urine tests were okay. RN started to uh, give some oral fluids because you don't have to use an IV. The pharmacist helped uh, prescribe some insulin to slowly bring the sugar down. And while Dr. Deacon went and saw her patients on her schedule, and within you know two to three hours, the symptoms have resolved, and the patient was <clears throat> discharged from the office to home with a follow-up. And so, you know highly functioning office, which basically probably staved off an admission and say that patient some, you know, uh, anxiety, uh, you know, quality and cost was addressed. So what I find, it's really amazing what providers will do if you give them the team and the skill sets to solve their own problems, you know, and then they'll utilize the informatics and their infrastructure. And in compensation does also help to encourage a change of behavior. So for us, I think our next big thing that we haven't really conquered yet is, um, doing universal screening across all offices for the social determinants of health and focusing on the Medicaid population. Our insurance partner just um, acquired uh, the, one of the two large Medicaid um, companies. And, you know, we're really now thinking we're going to have to utilize most of everything we just talked about, but probably has to have a multifaceted approach where, you know, it'll probably require developing out a community health worker network and identifying um, resources such as Zampertha as well as local resources to help uh, manage this population. But that's where we're going. Um, 
Fantastic. I think all of that sounds like an amazing um, work that you've done in terms of connecting with the providers, making sure you're supporting them and in really finding some amazing results with going through this transformation process um, and, and measuring and reporting that out. So thank you so much for providing those examples. I think that's so key and something that other um, organizations can really look at it and see as a model for moving forward, especially if they're looking at their providers and seeing some who are not happy um, maybe burnout is kicking in or, or maybe other things are problematic um, and just really kind of making that transformation and looking at value-based care and, and population health and how really they can become leaders um, within that space. So I, I really appreciate you going through all that with us. And before we wrap up our conversation, I just had one more question. What are you most excited about today and what makes you nervous? <laughs> I like that. Well, the the one nice thing is that um, all the work that has been done has been recognized. Uh, you know, I'm excited about the support and the continued support we have from senior leadership and the work that literally hundreds and thousands of people have done to, you know, address our population health has gained a lot of momentum and it's being utilized really to assess our readiness to take greater risk as an enterprise. So it's front and center. And now there's even a significant interest from our parent, Heimark Health, to scale some of the work that we're doing to other partner systems like the, you know, the patient tracking technologies, the dashboards, the, you know, the team-based care models. So that's, that's fun. But um, the other thing that's come out of it is, you know, second, we, we were able to enter into a primary care full-risk value-based agreement with one of our insurers in 2021. So we're kind of dipping our toe in the water um, to see how we can manage it under risk. And in 2022, uh, because we know we need to engage medicine specialties. Uh, you can't do this all in primary care. Um, you need you need you need everybody involved. We added inflammatory bowel disease and diabetes. So all visits associated uh, with those two diagnoses will also be under uh, primary care full risk agreement. So that's that's a fun thing where we're we're kind of figuring out how how can we how can we survive and how are we going to make it when we go to full risk. And lastly, uh, when it comes to compensation, we've been you know, changing our, our compensation and in primary care to help um, encourage behavior change for the last seven plus years. But AHN has become intentional of really taking our compensation from, you know, widgets to value. And that means different things to different institutes. Like you can't tell an orthopedist not to replace a knee, but what you can ask the orthopedist to do is make sure that you medically manage that to the point where it needs to be replaced that maybe there's only one knee that that patient has to undergo versus uh, having a redo at some point in time. So it means something to everybody. And the other other fun thing is we finally convinced our leadership that, you know, RVUs or work product doesn't really matter much. And it's really the risk adjusted panel size and the proper management of that panel and the, you know, the doc citizenship that adds value. And I use the example that, you know, we know um, how much each patient is worth with downstream revenue and our care alignment to our enterprise. I mean, I mean, everybody knows that I think in their system. So I take the example of a doc doing 5,000 RVUs, you know, if we can reduce that work product 20% down to 4,000, it just gets the doc off the hamster wheel or the APP. They now have time to manage their population a little bit better. They now have time to sit back and, and, and look at some things they can do to affect improve change in their population. And, you know, it allows them to open up access for growth. And, and when we access that growth, 
if they add 100 patients, just 100 patients, we know that we're going to lose around $85,000 for the primary care institute's revenue. But for the enterprise, we're going to pick up $300,000. So it's really um, exciting that our leadership is starting to look at what changes can we make as a whole group versus looking at each unit individually. Um, some of the concerns real quick is, you know, we in ambulatory medicine are, are, you know, proving, and it's probably across the country, that we're able to affect, you know, improvements in quality and reduced waste or cost. I mean, that's just what's happening across the country, and we all talk about it with each other. But the hospitals, on the other hand, they really can't keep pace at changing how they provide care and reducing their cost structure to keep up with the ambulatory capability. So, you know, right now with the payment system for the hospitals, even though they're penalties for readmissions, you know, the associated revenue with that admission is still greater than the penalty. And that's a concern. And even worse, all of this work that's been done by the CNs and ACOs across the country, you know, we personally have been able to reduce the percentage of all medical admissions, you know, through processes like home recovery care, sniff at home, you know, changing set of service. So that's a concern. And, you know, the hospitals, they're, they're not going to change yet because their survival is still based on volume and procedures. So I'm concerned about how enough hospitals will survive. But there's really not any new dollars, you know, being redirected by healthcare by CMS. But we really are going to need beds, no matter what admission rate we get to. There's going to be necessary care and complicated procedures. So it's kind of my biggest concern is how hospitals are going to be able to reinvent, you know, how they provide care and how we're going to be able to support them and reimburse them through that transition for those who really changed, you know and want to go through a redesign or transformational journey. So how do we keep enough available for access, you know, as we go through this change? Um, one thing we're doing here in order to try to help with that, help with the finances is, you know, through our CIN, you can also set up the same process within your hospitals. And I think for our, you know, hospital system, we're, we're trying to implement a hospital quality efficiency program. And it's basically, um, to help reduce the costs a hospital spends per DRG admission. And it's utilizing the same process that we do in our CN. It involves just taking each hospital and treating them as a geographic pod, uh, identifying the lead physician, putting a group of physician leaders together. You give them data, dashboards, um, and infrastructure, and it's really just looking at reducing the variability of care across our enterprise. And so it's like a wash, rinse, repeat. And because it's under the clinically integrated network, it allows both employed and non-employed providers in the hospital to work together without any uh, inurement or concerns with CMS. And, you know, the nice thing about this is, you know, when you're taking away admissions or you're reducing utilization, that does affect some of our community hospital partners. But this is one initiative that will probably help all of our non-HN hospitals because, you know, they'll be able to obtain the same amount of revenue from that admission what they'll do is hopefully increase their, their percent of net revenue by reducing the cost to take care of that mission. I know that sounds technical, but um, I think it's one thing we're going to try to do to help our hospitals as, you know, we're trying to get them through this journey of um, moving to value. With that, I say I appreciate the opportunity to have this conversation today. And for anybody listening, we're willing to discuss or to direct you to the right people if there's anybody interested in taking a deeper dive uh, with anything that was talked about today. So thank you.
Thank you so much, Dr. John Julio. I think this has been a really fascinating discussion. You've laid out so many interesting points here and really um, great perspective in terms of what's worked for you and, and um, what you're willing to try in the future. So we appreciate you coming on the podcast and look forward to connecting with you again soon.